Part two, chapter eight of the House of the Dead by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translator unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter eight. My companions. As will be understood, those to whom I was most drawn were people of my own sort, that is, those of noble birth, especially in the early days. But of the three ex-nobles in the place who were Russians, I knew and spoke to but one, Akim Akimitch. The other two were the spy A and the supposed parricide. Even with Akim, I never exchanged a word, except when in extremity, in moments when the melancholy on me was simply unendurable, and when I thought I really should never have the chance of getting close to any other human being again. In the last chapter I have tried to show that the convicts were of different types, and tried to classify them. But when I think of Akim Akimitch, I don't know how to place him. He was quite sui generis, so far as I could observe in that establishment. There may be elsewhere men like him, to whom it seemed as absolutely a matter of indifference whether he was a free man or in jail at hard labor. At that place he stood alone in this curious impartiality of temperament. He had settled down in the jail as if he was going to pass his whole life and didn't mind it at all. All his belongings, mattress, cushions, utensils, were so ordered as to give the impression that he was living in a furnished house of his own. There was nothing provisional, temporary, bivouac-like about him, or his words, or his habits. He had a good many years still to spend in punishment, but I much doubt whether he ever gave a thought to the time when he would get out. He was entirely reconciled to his condition, not because he had made any effort to be so, was simply out of natural submissiveness, but as far as his comfort went, it came to the same thing. He was not at all a bad fellow, and in the early days his advice and help were quite useful to me. But sometimes, I can't help saying it, his peculiarities deepened my natural melancholy, until it became almost intolerable anguish. When I became desperate with silence and solitude of soul, I would get into talk with him, I wanted to hear and reply to some words falling from a living soul, and the more filled with gall and hatred with all our surroundings they had been, the more would they have been in sympathy with my wretched mood. But he would just barely talk, quietly go on sizing his lanterns, and then begin to tell me some story as to how he had been at a review of troops in 18-something, that their general of division was so-and-so, that the manoeuvring had been very pretty, that there had been a change in the skirmish's system of signalling, and the like, all of it in level, imperturbable tones like water falling drop by drop. He did not put any life into them, even when he told me of a sharp affair in which he had been, in the Caucasus, for which his sword had got the decoration of the ribbon of St. Anne. The only difference was that his voice became a little more measured and grave. He lowered his tones when he pronounced the name St. Anne, as though he were telling a great secret, and then, for three minutes at least, did not utter a word, but only looked solemn. During all that first year I had strange passages of feeling, in which I hated Akim Akimitch with a bitter hatred. I am sure I cannot say why. Moments when I would despairingly curse the fate which made him my next neighbor on my camp-bed, so close indeed that our heads nearly touched. An hour afterwards I bitterly reproached myself for such extravagance. It was, however, only during my first year of confinement that these violent feelings overpowered me. As time went on, I got used to Akim Akimitch's singular character, 
and was ashamed of my former explosions i don't remember that he and i ever got into anything like an open quarrel besides the three russian nobles of whom i have spoken there were eight others there during my time with some of whom i came to be on a footing of intimate friendship even the best of them were morbid in mind exclusive and intolerant to the very last degree with two of them i was obliged to discontinue all spoken intercourse there were only three who had any education b m and the old man j who had formerly been a professor of mathematics an excellent fellow highly eccentric and a very narrow mental horizon in spite of his learning m and b were of a mould quite different from his between m and myself there was an excellent understanding from the first set-off he and i never once got into any sort of dispute i respected him highly but could never become sincerely attached to him though i tried to he was sour embittered and mistrustful with much self-control this was quite antipathetic to me the man had a closed soul closed to everybody and he made you feel it i felt it so strongly that perhaps i was wrong about it after all his character i must say was stamped with both nobleness and strength his inveterate scepticism made him very prudent in his relations with everybody about him and in conducting these he gave proof of remarkable tact and skill sceptic as he was there was another and a reverse side in his nature for in some things he was a profound and unalterable believer with faith and hope unshakable in spite of his tact in dealing with men he got into open hostilities with b and his friend t the first of these b was a man of infirm health of consumptive tendency irascible and of a weak nervous system but a good and generous man his nervous irritability went so far that he was as capricious as a child a temperament of that kind was too much for me there so i soon saw as little of b as i could possibly help though i never ceased to like him much it was just the other way so far as m was concerned with him i always was on easy terms though i did not like him at all when i edged away from b i had to break also more or less with t of whom i spoke in the last chapter which i much regretted for though of little education he had an excellent heart a worthy very spiritual man he loved and respected b so much that those who broke with that friend of his he regarded as his personal enemies he quarrelled with m on account of b and they kept up the difference a long while all these people were as bilious as they could be humorsome mistrustful the victims of a moral and physical supersensitiveness it is not to be wondered at their position was trying indeed much more so than ours they were all exiled transported for ten or twelve years and what made their sojourn in the prison most distressing to them was their rooted ingrained prejudice especially their unfortunate way of regarding the convicts which they could not get over in their eyes the unhappy fellows were mere wild beasts without a single recognizable human quality everything in their previous career and their present circumstances combined to produce this unhappy feeling in them their life at the jail was perpetual torment to them they were kindly and conversable with the circassians with the tartars with isaiah fomitch but for the other prisoners they had nothing but contempt and aversion the only one they had any real respect for was the aged old believer for all this during all the time i spent at the convict establishment 
I never knew a single prisoner to reproach them with either their birth or religious opinions or convictions, as is so usual with our common people in their relations with people of different condition, especially if these happen to be foreigners. The fact is they cannot take the foreigner seriously. To the Russian common people he seems a merely grotesque, comical creature. Our convicts had and showed much more respect for the Polish nobles than for us Russians, but I don't think the Poles cared about the matter or took any notice of the difference. I spoke just now of T and have something more to say of him. When he had with his friend to leave the first place assigned to them as residence in their banishment to come to our fortress, he carried his friend B nearly the whole way. B was of quite a weak frame and in bad health and became exhausted before half of the first march was accomplished. They had first been banished to Y, where they lived in tolerable comfort. Life was much less hard there than in our fortress, but in consequence of a correspondence with the exiles in one of the other towns, a quite innocent exchange of letters, it was thought necessary to remove them to our jail to be under the more direct surveillance of the government. Until they came, M had been quite alone, and dreadful must have been his sufferings in that first year of his banishment. J was the old man always deep in prayer, of whom I spoke a little earlier. All the political convicts were quite young men, while J was at least fifty years old. He was a worthy, gentlemanlike person, if eccentric. T and B detested him and never spoke to him. They insisted upon it that he was too obstinate and troublesome to put up with, and I was obliged to admit it was so. I believe that at a convict establishment, as in every place where people have to be together, whether they like it or not, people are more ready to quarrel with and detest one another than under other circumstances. Many causes contributed to the squabbles that were unfortunately always going on. Jay was really disagreeable and narrow-minded. Not one of those about him was on good terms with him. He and I did not come to a rupture, but we were never on a really friendly footing. I fancy that he was a strong mathematician. One day he explained to me in his half-Russian, half-Polish jargon, a system of astronomy of his own. I had been told that he had written a work upon the subject which the learned world had received with derision. I fancy his reasonings on some things had got twisted. He used to be on his knees praying for a whole day sometimes, which made the convicts respect him exceedingly during the remnant of life he had to pass there. He died under my eyes at the jail after a very trying illness. He had won the consideration of the prisoners from the first moment of his coming in, on account of what had happened with the major and him. When they were brought afoot from Y to our fortress, they were not shaved on the road at all. Their hair and beards had grown to great lengths when they were brought before the major. That worthy foamed like a madman. He was wild with indignation at such infraction of discipline, though it was none of their fault. My God! Did you ever see anything like it? he roared. They are vagabonds, brigands. Jay knew very little Russian and fancied that he was asking them if they were brigands or vagabonds, so he answered, We are political prisoners, not rogues and vagabonds. So! You mean impudence! Claude! howled the major. To the guardhouse with him! A hundred strokes of the rod at once, this instant, I say. They gave the old man the punishment. He lay flat on the ground under the strokes without the slightest resistance, kept his hand in his teeth, and bore it all without a murmur and without moving a muscle. B and T arrived at the jail as this was all going on, and M was waiting for them at the principal gate, 
knowing that they were just coming in. He threw himself on their neck, although he had never seen them before. Utterly disgusted at the way the Major had received them, they told M all about the cruel business that had just occurred. M told me later that he was quite beside himself with rage when he heard it. I could not contain myself for passion, he said. I shook as though with ague. I waited for Jay at the great gate, for he would come straight that way from the guardhouse after his punishment. The gate was opened, and there I saw pass before me Jay, his lips all white and trembling, his face pale as death. He did not look at a single person, and passed through the groups of convicts assembled in the courtyard. They knew a noble had just been subjected to punishment, went into the barrack, went straight to his place, and without a word dropped down on his knees for prayer. The prisoners were surprised and even affected. When I saw this old man with white hairs, who had left behind him at home a wife and children, kneeling and praying after that scandalous treatment, I rushed away from the barrack, and for a couple of hours felt as if I had gone stark, staring, raving mad, or blind drunk. From that first moment the convicts were full of deference and consideration for Jay. What particularly pleased them was that he did not utter a cry when undergoing the punishment. But one must be fair and tell the truth about this sort of thing. This sad story is not an instance of what frequently occurs in the treatment by the authorities of transported noblemen, Russian or Polish, and this isolated case affords no basis for passing judgment upon that treatment. My anecdote merely shows that you may light upon a bad man anywhere and everywhere, and if it happened that such a one is in absolute command of a jail, and if he happened to have a grudge against one of the prisoners, the lot of such a one will be indeed very far from enviable. But the administrative chiefs who regulate and supervise convict labor in Siberia, and from whom subordinates take their tone as well as their orders, are careful to exercise a discriminating treatment in the case of persons of noble birth, and, in some cases, grant them special indulgences as compared with the lot of convicts of lower condition. There are obvious reasons for this. These heads of departments are nobles themselves. They know that men of that class must not be driven to extremity. Cases have been known where nobles have refused to submit to corporal punishment and flung themselves desperately on their tormentors with very grave and serious consequences indeed. Moreover, and this, I think, is the leading cause of the good treatment, some time ago, thirty-five years at least, there were transported to Siberia quite a crowd of noblemen. These were of such correct and irreproachable demeanor and held themselves so high that the heads of departments fell into the way which they have never afterwards left of regarding criminals of noble birth and ordinary convicts in quite a different manner, and men in lower place took their cue from them. Many of these, no doubt, were little pleased with that disposition in their superiors. Such persons were pleased enough when they could do exactly as they liked in the matter. But this did not often happen. They were kept well within bounds. I have reason to be satisfied of this, and I will say why. I was put in the second category, a classification of those condemned to hard labor, which was primarily and principally composed of convicts who had been serfs under military superintendents. Now this second category, or class, was much harder than the first of the mines or the third manufacturing work. It was harder not only for the nobles but for the other convicts too, because the governing and administrative methods and personnel in it were wholly military, and were pretty much the same in type as those of the convict establishments in Russia. 
the men in official position were severer the general treatment more rigorous than in the two other classes the men were never out of irons an escort of soldiers was always present you were always or nearly so within stone walls and things were quite different in the other classes at least so the convicts said and there were those among them who had every reason to know they would all have gladly gone off to the mines which the law classified as the worst and last punishment it was their constant dream and desire to do so all those who had been in the russian convict establishment spoke with horror of them and declared that there was no hell like them that siberia was a paradise compared with confinement in the fortresses in russia if then it is the case that we nobles were treated with special consideration in the establishment i was confined in which was under direct control of the governor-general and administered entirely on military principles there must have been some greater kindliness in the treatment of the convicts of the first and third category or class i think i can speak with some authority about what went on throughout siberia in these respects and i based my views as to this upon all that i heard from convicts of these classes we in our prison were under much more rigorous surveillance than was elsewhere practised we were favoured with no sort of exemptions from the ordinary rules as regards work and confinement and the wearing of chains we could not do anything for ourselves to get immunity from the rules for i at least knew quite well that in the good old time which was quite of yesterday there had been so much intriguing to undermine the credit of officials that the authorities were greatly afraid of informers and that as things stood to show indulgence to a convict was regarded as a crime everybody therefore authorities and convict alike was in fear of what might happen we of the nobles were thus quite down to the level of the other convicts the only point we were favoured in was in regard to corporal punishment but i think that we should have had even that inflicted on us had we done anything for which it was prescribed for equality as to punishment was strictly enjoined or practised what i mean is that we were not wantonly causelessly mishandled like the other prisoners when the governor got to know of the punishment inflicted on j he was seriously angry with the major and ordered him to be more careful for the future the thing got very generally known we learned also that the governor-general who had great confidence in our major and who liked him because of his exact observance of legal bounds and thought highly of his qualities in the service gave him a sharp scolding and our major took the lesson to heart i have no doubt it was this prevented his having m beaten which he would have much liked to do being much influenced by the slanderous things a said about m but the major could never get a fair pretext for doing so however much he persecuted and set spies upon his proposed victim so he had to deny himself that pleasure the j affair became known all through the town and public opinion condemned the major some persons reproached him openly for what he had done and some even insulted him the first occasion on which the man crossed my path may as well be mentioned we had alarming things reported to us to me and another nobleman under sentence about the abominable character of this man while we were still at tobolsk men who had been sentenced a long while back to twenty-five years of the misery nobles as we were and who had visited us so kindly during our provisional sojourn in the first prison had warned us what sort of man we were to be under they had also promised to do all they could for us with their friends to see that he hurt us as little as possible and in fact they did write to the three daughters of the governor-general who i believe interceded on our behalf with their father 
but what could he do? No more, of course, than tell the major to be fair in applying the rules and regulations to our case. It was about three in the afternoon that my companion and myself arrived in the town. Our escort took us at once to our tyrant. We remained waiting for him in the antechamber, while they went to find the next in command at the prison. As soon as the latter had come, in walked the major. We saw an inflamed scarlet face that boded no good, and affected us quite painfully. He seemed like a sort of spider about to throw itself on a poor fly wriggling in its web. "'What's your name, man?' said he to my companion. He spoke with a harsh, jerky voice, as if he wanted to overawe us. My friend gave his name. "'And you?' said he, turning to me and glaring at me behind his spectacles. I gave mine. "'Sergeant, take him to the prison, and let him be shaved at the guardhouse, civilian fashion, hair off half their skulls, and let him be put in irons to-morrow. "'Why, what sort of cloaks have you got there?' said he brutally when he saw the grey cloaks with yellow sewn at the back, which they had given to us at Tobolsk. Why, that's a new uniform, begad, a new uniform. They're always getting up something or other. That's a Petersburg trick, he said, as he inspected us one after the other. Got anything with them, he said abruptly to the gendarme who escorted us. They've got their own clothes, your worship, replied he, and the man carried arms just as if on parade, not without a nervous tremor. Everybody knew the fellow and was afraid of him. Take their clothes away from them. They can't keep anything but their linen, their white things. Take away all their colored things, if they've got any, and sell them off at the next sale and put the money to the prison account. A convict has no property, said he, looking severely at us. Hark ye, behave prettily. Don't let me have any complaining. If I do, cat o' nine tails, the smallest offense, and to the sticks you go. This way of receiving me, so different from anything I had ever known, made me nearly ill that night. It was a frightful thing to happen at the very moment of entering the infernal place, but I have already told that part of my story. Thus we had no sort of exemption or immunity from any of the miseries inflicted there, no lightening of our labours when with the other convicts. But friends tried to help us by getting us sent for three months, B and me, to the Bureau of the Engineers, to do copying work. This was done quietly and as much as possible kept from being talked about or observed. This piece of kindness was done for us by the head engineers during the short time that Lieutenant Colonel G was governor at our prison. This gentleman had command there only for six short months, for he soon went back to Russia. He really seemed to us all like an angel of goodness sent from heaven, and the feeling for him among the convicts was of the strongest kind. It was not mere love, it was something like adoration. I cannot help saying so. How he did it, I don't know, but their hearts went out to him from the moment they first set eyes on him. He's more like a father than anything else, the prisoners kept continually saying, during all the time he was there at the head of the engineering department. He was a brilliant, joyous fellow. He was of low stature with a bold, confident expression, and he was all gracious kindness to the convicts for whom he really did seem to entertain a fatherly sort of affection. How was it he was so fond of them? It is hard to say, but he seemed never to be able to pass a prisoner without a bit of pleasant talk and a little laughing and joking together. There was nothing that smacked of authority in his pleasantries, nothing that reminded them of his position over them. He behaved just as if he was one of themselves. In spite of this kind condescension, I don't remember any one of the convicts ever failing in respect to him, or taking the slightest liberty, quite the other way. 
the convict's face would light up in a wonderful sudden way when he met the governor it was odd to see how the face smiled all over and the hand went to the cap when the governor was seen in the distance making for the poor man a word from him was regarded as a signal honour there are some people like that who know how to win all hearts g had a bold jaunty air walked with long strides holding himself very straight a regular eagle the convicts used to call him he could not do much to lighten their lot materially for his office was that of superintending the engineering work which had to be done in ways and quantities settled absolutely and unalterably by the regulations but if he happened to come across a gang of convicts who had actually got through their work he allowed them to go back to quarters before beat of drum without waiting for the regulation moment the prisoners loved him for the confidence he showed in them and because of his aversion for all mean trifling interferences with them which are so irritating when prison superiors are addicted to that sort of thing i am absolutely certain that if he had lost a thousand roubles in notes there was not a thief in the prison however hardened who would not have brought them to him if the man lit on them i am sure of it how the prisoners all felt for him and with him when they learned that he was at daggers drawn with our detested major that came about a month after his arrival their delight knew no bounds the major had formerly served with him in the same detachment so when they met after a long separation they were at first boon companions but the intimacy could not and did not last they came to blows figuratively and g became the major's sworn enemy some would have it that it was more than figuratively that they came to actual fisticuffs a likely thing enough as far as the major was concerned for the man had no objection to a scrimmage when the convicts heard of the quarrel they really could not contain their delight old eight eyes and the commandant get on finely together he's an eagle but the other's a badden those who believed in the fight were mighty curious to know which of the two had had the worst of it and got a good drubbing if it had been proved there had been no fighting our convicts i think would have been bitterly disappointed the commandant gave him fits you may bet your life on it said they he's a little one but as bold as a lion the other one got into a blue funk and hid under the bed from him but g went away only too soon and keenly was he regretted in the prison our engineers were all most excellent fellows we had three or four fresh batches of them while i was there our eagles never remain very long with us said the prisoners especially when they are good and kind fellows it was this g who sent b and myself to work in his bureau for he was partial to exiled nobles when he left our condition was still fairly endurable for there was another engineer there who showed us much sympathy and friendship we copied reports for some time and our handwriting was getting to be very good when an order came from the authorities that we were to be sent back to hard labour as before some spiteful person had been at work at bottom we were rather pleased for we were quite tired of copying for two whole years i worked in company with b all the time in the shops and many a gossip did we have about our hopes for the future and our notions and convictions good b had a very odd mind which worked in a strange exceptional way there are some people of great intelligence who indulge in paradox unconscionably but when they have undergone great and constant sufferings for their ideas and made great sacrifices for them you can't drive their notions out of their heads and it is cruel to try it when you objected something to b's propositions he was really hurt and gave you a violent answer 
He was, perhaps, more in the right than I was, as to some things, wherein we differed, but we were obliged to give one another up, very much to my regret, for we had many thoughts in common. As years went on, M became more and more sombre and melancholy. He became a prey to despair. During the earliest part of my imprisonment, he was communicative enough, and let us see what was going on in him. When I arrived at the prison, he had just finished his second year. At first he took a lively interest in the news I brought, for he knew nothing of what had been going on in the outer world. He put questions to me, listened eagerly, showed emotion, but bit by bit his reserve grew on him, and there was no getting at his thoughts. The glowing coals were all covered up with ashes. Yet it was plain that his temper grew sourer and sourer. Je sais brigand, he would say, speaking of convicts I had got to know something of. I never could make him see any good in them. He really did not seem to fully enter into the meaning of anything I said on their behalf, though he would sometimes seem to agree in a listless sort of way. Next day it was just as before. Je sais brigand. We used often to speak French with him, so one of the overseers of the works, the soldier Dranichnikov, used always to call us aides chirurgiens, God knows why. M. never seemed to shake off his usual apathy except when he spoke of his mother. She is old and infirm, he said. She loves me better than anything in the world, and I don't even know if she's still living. If she learns that I've been whipped... M. was not a noble, and had been whipped before he was transported. When the recollection of this came up in his mind, he gnashed his teeth and could not look anybody in the face. In the latest days of his imprisonment, he used to walk to and fro, quite alone for the most part. One day at noon he was summoned to the governor, who received him with a smile on his lips. Well, M., what were your dreams last night? asked the governor. Said M. to me later. When he said that to me, a shudder ran through me. I felt struck at the heart. His answer was, I dreamed that I had a letter from my mother. Better than that, better, replied the governor. You are free. Your mother has petitioned the emperor, and he has granted her prayer. Here, here's her letter, and the order for your dismissal. You are to leave the jail without delay. He came to us pale, scarcely able to believe in his good fortune. We congratulated him. He pressed our hands with his own, which were quite cold and trembled violently. Many of the convicts wished him joy. They were really glad to see his happiness. He settled in Siberia, establishing himself in our town, where a little after that they gave him a place. He used often to come to the jail to bring us news, and tell us all that was going on as often as he could talk with us. It was political news that interested him chiefly. Besides the four Poles, the political convicts of whom I spoke just now, there were two others of that nation who were sentenced for very short periods. They had not much education, but were good, simple, straightforward fellows. There was another, A, quite a colourless person, one more I must mention, B, a man well on in years, who impressed us all very unfavourably indeed. I don't know what he had been sentenced for, although he used to tell us some story or other about it pretty frequently. He was a person of a vulgar, mean type, with the coarse manner of an enriched shopkeeper. He was quite without education, and seemed to take interest in nothing except what concerned his trade which was that of a painter, a sort of scene-painter he was. He showed a good deal of talent in his work, and the authorities of the prison soon came to know about his abilities, so he got employment all through the town in decorating walls and ceilings. In two years he beautified the rooms of nearly all the prison officials, 
who remunerated him handsomely, so he lived pretty comfortably. He was sent to work with three other prisoners, two of whom learned the business thoroughly. One of these, T, painted nearly as well as B himself. Our major, who had rooms in one of the government buildings, sent for B and gave him a commission to decorate the walls and ceilings there, which he did so effectively that the suite of rooms of the governor-general were quite put out of countenance by those of the major. The house itself was a ramshackle old place, while the interior, thanks to B, was as gay as a palace. Our worthy major was hugely delighted, went about rubbing his hands and told everybody that he should look out for a wife at once. A fellow can't remain single when he lives in a place like that. He was quite serious about it. The major's satisfaction with B and his assistants went on increasing. They occupied a month in the work at the major's house. During those memorable days, the major seemed to get into a different frame of mind about us and began to be quite kind to us political prisoners. One day he sent for J. J, said he, I've done you wrong. I had you beaten for nothing. I'm very sorry. Do you understand? I'm very sorry. I, Major. J answered that he understood perfectly. Do you understand? I, who am set over you, I have sent for you to ask your pardon. You can hardly realize it, I suppose. What are you to me, fellow? A worm, less than a crawling worm. You're a convict, while I, by God's grace, am a Major. Major, do you understand? J answered that he quite well understood it all. Well, I want to be friends with you, but can you appreciate what I'm doing? Can you feel the greatness of soul I'm showing? Feel and appreciate it? Just think of it. I, I, the major, etc., etc. Jay told me of this scene. There was then some human feeling left in this drunken, unruly, and tormenting brute. Allowing for the man's notions of things and feeble faculties, one cannot deny that this was a generous proceeding on his part. Perhaps he was a little less drunk than usual, perhaps more, who can tell? The major's glorious idea of marrying came to nothing. The rooms got all their bravery, but the wife was not forthcoming. Instead of going to the altar in that agreeable way, he was pulled up before the authorities and sent to trial. He received orders to send in his resignation. Some of his old sins had found him out, it seems, things done when he had been superintendent of police in our town. This crushing blow came down upon him without notice quite suddenly. All the convicts were greatly rejoiced when they heard the great news. It was high day and holiday all through the jail. The story went abroad that the major sobbed and cried and howled like an old woman. But he was helpless in the matter. He was obliged to leave his place, sell his two grey horses and everything he had in the world, and he fell into complete destitution. We came across him occasionally afterwards in civilian threadbare clothes and wearing a cap with a cockade. He glanced at us convicts as spitefully and maliciously as you please. But without his major's uniform, all the man's glory was gone. While placed over us, he gave himself the airs of a being higher than human, who had got into coat and breeches. Now it was all over, he looked like the lackey he was, and a disgraced lackey to boot. With fellows of this sort, the uniform is the only saving grace. That gone, all's gone. End of chapter 8. Recording by Expatria in Bangor, Maine.